He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to episode two of Munson's at the Movies. Uh, my name's Kyle. I'm here once again uh, with the rest of the Munson's. want to give them a wide berth. So go ahead and uh, introduce themselves. Uh, Warren, what's going on, brother? Yeah, I'm uh, a little lithgowed out right now, but uh, really, really enjoyed some of his early work. Rigby, what's going on on your end, man? Uh, not much. Happy to be back with you guys. It's been about a month since we last did this. As Big Aaron says, uh, long enough for every topping on the table. <laughs> <laughs> But always, always happy to catch up with you guys and talk. Perfect product placement. Love it. James, how about you? Uh, just celebrating the Yankees 2017 World Series since Warren's <laughs> Astros were caught red-handed <laughs> with the worst cheating scandal in Major League Baseball history. But other than that, not much, man. Aaron Judge did unpost a photo of El Tuve after he heard about all of those things that went down. He's very sad. Yeah, uh, yeah I'd, I'd be sad after striking out 19 times in the 7 series, too. <laughs> yeah, dude, imagine if you knew what pitches were coming, you'd be great. <laughs> Good Lord, you guys want to take this outside? Just, yeah, per- Purdue bros going after it. All right, Case, what, how about you, man? Oh, just excited to talk some movies tonight. Well, that's why we're here. Mostly, other than to talk about the battle between the Astros and the Yankees and the, the budding rivalry that I'm sure will be Beanball City all year. Let's start with some of our intro topics. I think number one, a lot of the work that goes into this podcast is obviously due to the work of the guys on on this call, but we've got some unsung contributors in the background that we want to give a quick shout out to, especially as we go from episode one to episode two. So we want to give a shout out to some of those ladies behind the scenes who have helped us out. So I think number one, Kelsey Chavez helped a lot with the initial uh, concepting and ideas behind the podcast. And I know she'll love a quick shout out from us. Uh, Lauren, uh, Warren's wife, uh, gave us a lot of really good feedback after episode one. And we've since adopted some of that feedback and making sure that we're producing the best product possible. And uh, James, I know you wanted to give a quick shout out to... Yeah, Kate helped us with the image that we're using and the logo. And so if any of you say anything bad about it, I will fight you to the death. Thank you. (laughs) Fade on sight. Yep. Luckily, it's goddamn beautiful. And I couldn't think of anything better. And uh, props... Props to Rigby for the idea of uh, taking the, the rose ball and, and running with it. Yeah, here, here to all the uh, the backstage helpers for making this thing work. I appreciate it. Yeah, we, You know what they say, behind every successful man is a woman pegging him. I mean... Uh, <laughs> Dude, I told I mean, you that in confidence. <laughs> so uh, we're going to keep going. Uh, another shout out I want to toss into the, the, the sphere is you know our early fans, especially on Twitter, um, since that seems to be where we're getting the most traction. Um, so I want to give a shout out to kind of our, I don't want to say our biggest fan, but our most active fan up to this point, Athena Marr. Her grandfather worked in the makeup industry in Hollywood back in between, I think, the 40s and the 60s. And she's a huge JGL fan. So we were going back and forth about JGL. And so I just want to give her a shout out and a lot of our other fans who have been listening so far. If you've taken time to listen to our first episode and you're back for more, you're a glutton for pain, but we appreciate you very much because, um, you know, we do this to have discussions of the group, but 
at the same time, it's uh, it's it's good to have others who think we're not batshit crazy. Transitioning, talk a little bit about the Oscars. We haven't had a chance to discuss it since uh, our first episode. So, uh, Parasite kind of blew everyone's mind and won what four Oscars and Best Picture. Any thoughts from you guys on uh, whether you saw it coming? And uh, what do you think of that? Well, I still haven't seen it, period. So I'm probably the wrong person to uh, to talk about that. But um, I'll let others discuss their reaction to Parasite winning. I'd probably say that across all the, the movies, Parasite was the most deserving, just from all aspects and facets of, of the movie itself. When you take in you know, directing to, you know, screenplay, stuff like that. And, you know, it, it re, you know, got all the awards for it. So, uh, was it my favorite? No, but it was definitely the most deserving, uh, of it this year. I would say, um, one of my favorite parts of Parasite winning was watching people like Rigby who haven't seen it, but Rigby obviously said, I'll let someone else talk, judge it winning and pretty much <laughs> out themselves as being ignorant towards foreign films altogether. <laughs> Um, and that has been a true pleasure where people have been like, how could this movie have won? Uh, I'll admit, I have no idea what it's about and I've never seen it, but I am strongly against any non-American movie winning a film. That was probably my favorite part because uh, Parasite I thought was tremendous. I thought it was very hard to choose between the finalists this year. I thought they were all fairly, uh, really well done. Um, I could absolutely see it winning. And so for someone to make a strong case that it shouldn't have won means they just de- definitely didn't see it or they're just outing themselves as some sort of ignorant racist. So it was a real pleasure to watch that <laughs> unfold. I, I, I'm, I'm definitely the former and not the latter there. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I will admit, I, I sincerely apologize for slacking and not have seen it or not have uh, watched it yet. You just hate subtitles, Rigby. You just hate them. No, it's funny. Like when I watch TV, when I watch TV, you know, shows and movies in English, I like to have the subtitles on cause I don't like to miss dialogue, but I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a lack of desire to to watch it. I mean, there's been a lot of best picture movies in the last couple of years that I just have had no desire to see. Um, it took me a while to see Shape of Water. It took me a while to see Moonlight. I actually liked Green Book, believe it or not, unlike most people. But this one, I just haven't. I just haven't. It's not that I. You don't I have just, to defend your your your. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so I, I, no, you're no, good, like, man. You already I mean, said you're not one of those races. Yeah, yeah. No, I, you're I kinda, good, man. That's, where, that's you where you properly stop. removed yourself. It's the <laughs> yeah. other people I was referencing. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. You're, all right, I'll, you're just I'll lazy stop. on it. That's all. I'm that lazy is. on it. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there you go. go. Uh, I will tell you, watching it and seeing the Twitter banner go back and forth, it wasn't winning some of the precursors early on that it needed to, and so I think people started to get a little down. But when Bong Joon Ho won Best Director, that's when everybody went, "Holy shit, this could happen." And that was a cool moment too when he won because he thanked you know all the big directors. That was awesome to see. Oh, that was he th- didn't Scorsese cry? He yeah, was, and he was yep. tearing up. Yep, Sam Sam Mendes looked pissed, but other than that, everyone everyone <laughs> else was uh everyone else. It was a cool moment for sure. Because Bong Joon Ho is like obsessed with Scorsese and Tarantino and beers and beers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that man. How many times did he mention? What three times? Yeah, he's like, I'm gonna get drunk. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I I was watching it at the art theater, and when they announced Parasite, I lost my friggin' mind in that in there. So that was that was a cool moment, and especially when they they turn the lights off, and then the entire crowd's like, "Nah, 
give him more time. It was very deserving. Like everybody, it seemed like everybody in that theater was like, yeah, all on board, fully deserving. It wasn't like the La La Land win where half the room was like, eh. but Moonlight? Question mark. <laughs> so, any other surprises, frustrations about how the rest of the the Academy Awards went for you guys? Um, it still bothers me that. I really liked Joker, and I hate most people that really like that movie. Um, <laughs> I thought that it, you know, Joaquin Phoenix was very well deserving of Best Actor. But what bothers me more is how it's become like edged lord kind of anti-establishment, and this movie should be the greatest movie of all time. And it, I thought the movie was great. Uh, I really don't like all the rest of the people who kind of I'm fitting in with by saying that. Guilty by association, James. For the best supporting actress, Laura Dern is great in a lot of things, but I felt like she was in the movie for like four minutes and most of it she was just like taking off. Like she was there, she took off her shoes and listened to Scarlett give that incredible <laughs> like monologue. I'm pretty sure her words like dresses like a hooker in court to like you know, play a certain part. Like she's great in so many things, but those the other actresses like Margot Robbie wasn't much in Bombshell. I mean, I love JoJo, and so it's hard to say anything bad about Scarlet in that one. But again, she wasn't in that movie for it very long either. She didn't have a ton of screen time. Yeah, and I didn't see I didn't see Richard Jewell, so I can't really speak to Kathy Bates. But just off the, li- I mean. Florence Pugh is on a on a tear of awesome movies, and so I'd probably have instinctively given it to one of them without even seeing the movie. So I'm not much of a judge. I just like I did see Marriage Story and didn't really care that much about her role in it. And she seemed like a, a, a lock to get it from the beginning. Yeah, she she won every precursor along the way, so it was the most uninteresting award of the entire night. Same with Brad Pitt, and I'm glad he won, but that he he's he swept everything too. I feel like. For best supporting actor, he did. Wasn't that her Laura Dern's first nomination since like '92? Do you think it was just like her trying to like she was coming back at it, and they were just like, "All right, she's she's back, almost 30 years. Let's let's get it to her." Well, yeah, because didn't she get blacklisted kind of for a little bit because of what she did with Ellen? I don't think she got a job for like 10 years after she played Ellen's girlfriend on the episode that Ellen came out in like 1995 or somewhere around that time period. All right, IMDb birthdays, a standing uh, piece in our show. Warren, tell us a little bit about the uh, the actors or celebrities who were were born on February 27th. Oh man, this was a uh, this was a hard one. There are not many. I'm, I feel like there's fewer on this day than there were if we were filming on the on the 29th. Um, <laughs> so no no joke. If you haven't heard of one of these three, uh, I'm sure you have though. But we'll start with uh, Adam Baldwin. Wolf Mother himself from uh, Full Metal. Full Metal Jacket. I'm going to go 55, Warren. And he's not one of the Baldwin brothers. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's important. That's very important. Oh, he was in Independence Day. Oh, yeah. He's that's the general I remember Independence. Yeah. Or he's the, yeah, the, the, he's he's the, the one guy. that determines that the, bullet pr- the, the glass is not bulletproof. <laughs> yes. You can tell a lot about what movies people watch when they were kids based on the first movie they think of with people like Adam Baldwin. <laughs> Adam Baldwin. I'm going to say 51. I have no idea who this man is, so I'm going to go high and say 60. <laughs> oh, shit. That's exactly what I was going to do. I got no idea who you're talking about. I'm going to go uh, I'm gonna go 65 then. Oh, shit. He is, he is fi- 58. Ooh. Oh, so Rigby, nice. Rigby takes the dub. 
All right, number two, Kate Mara, Rudy oh. Mara's older sister. Older sister. Grand, he gave us grand, a context granddaughter, clue. Granddaughter of the Mara football family. I'm going to go 39. 39. She was the one who got – she got pushed in front of the train at the very yep. beginning of season oh, two of House Dude, Star, spoiler right? alert. <laughs> dude, I stopped watching that show the second that happened. Oh, I stopped after Spacey uh, got canceled. Uh, that was what that, she got. She got offed well before he no, I know. offed himself places. Yeah. If you ask Warren <laughs> about episode two of season two, he will not know anything about it. <laughs> he gave up a death on the tracks. So, so. yeah, uh, you said thirty-four. Yep, thirty-nine is my guess. I'm gonna go thirty-two. Yeah, I again, I got no idea who we're talking about, so I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go twenty-eight. Uh, she is 37, so James wins that one. Nice. W, let's go. Uh, f- last last but not least, we have Donald Logue. Oh, nice. Ooh, hell is Ooh, Donald okay. Logue? Uh, Don- Donald Logue was in uh, Sons of Anarchy. He was in the show Grounded for Life for a long time. Uh, he was in Gotham. That's not who I was thinking of. Oh, he's in Blade. Were you thinking of Donald Gleason? I don't know who I was. I was thinking of some. I, I don't know who I was thinking of. Yeah, he's he was, in the Patriot. He's he in was Blade. In, yep. He was in Zodiac. He was in Blade. He was uh, like Stephen Dorff's right hand man. What he? What was he in Zodiac? <laughs> uh, he's he's a he's fifty four. Fuck it. Like you got, <laughs> you got started. It was he so. Was, <laughs> it was so hard to find like three people. In Zodiac. <laughs> Sorry, that Warren's like. Warren's like, I'm taking the dub on this one, bro. (laughs) Thanks, Warren. We appreciate you, brother. That was good. I got to collect myself to get ready for this next portion. All right, so as we transition, before we start talking about our our boy John Lithgow, let's let's remind our audience, because, you know, we may have some new listeners that may not understand how the, the show works yet, but talk a little bit about the five choices. So we've got almost 500 plus actors on a big list. We use a random number generator. We get it down to five, and then we spin a wheel. The wheel decides. The wheel decides. Hashtag the wheel decides. And in this case, the five that we had to pick from were John Lithgow, Peter Stormare, Adam Scott, Sam Neill, and Kristen Wiig. So again, just real quick, based on those five, were there any that you were particularly interested in hearing to talk through? What reasons? Those types of things. I think uh, of them, I'm actually happy that we got the result we wanted i think of those five uh let's go is definitely the one i would the most interested in discussing his career i agree completely yeah i want to wait on chris and wig until after wonder woman 1984 if if it ever comes around on the wheel the wheel decides, the wheel decides. there's no bias no bias in this all right well let's let's transition then we'll talk a little bit about john lithgow he's our actor of the episode. James will start us off with a little trivia, and we'll take our we'll do our best shot to answer the questions correctly. Okay, so to remind everyone, uh, I'm going to give three facts. Two of them are true. One of them is not true. Um, and I'm going to ask the guys to guess which one is not about John Lithgow. So fact number one, he actually graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University and became the first actor ever to deliver a commencement speech at Harvard 30 years later. Fact number two, uh, when he was growing up in NYC at a young age, he broke into a theater with his brother and some friends. And when they were caught by the play director, instead of calling the police, she actually casted them to be part in the next show. 
And then fact number three, uh, he was the voice of Yoda on the NPR adaptation of The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. So of those three, which one is not true? Wow. I'm going two. Two is two is enticing, but he's come from a theater background, so I could 100% see, see his like college shenanigans, something like this. So I'm not convinced two is false. I'm, I'm going to pick two is false because it sounds like he's telling the story of Aerosmith, not John Lithgow. <laughs> <laughs> all right so and then let's uh so we got two guesses for two kyle undecided warren undecided i'm gonna guess number one uh i'm gonna say he did graduate but he didn't give a commencement he wasn't the first actor to give a commencement speech i'm probably gonna join the boys and go with number two because i th- number three is really specific so i think that one's accurate and based on some of the research i've seen i think pretty sure he went to harvard and i feel like you wouldn't have fiddled with what level he graduated at so that's my answer so uh, to go through it uh number one was in fact true he graduated near the top of the class in harvard and was the first actor ever to give a commencement graduation speech i uh, did that in 2005 um number three was in fact true uh, he was the voice of Yoda for the NPR radio adaptation. And when you listen to it, it's hysterical because he doesn't try to do a Yoda voice. It's very much just John Lithgow. <laughs> uh, very enjoyable. Um, and so number two was, in fact, false because that is a true story about Vin Diesel. <laughs> <laughs> so all the, the lies are going to be Vin Diesel facts. <laughs> I mean, I that is just so much about Vin Diesel. That is sheer coincidence. I have no idea what you guys are referencing. <laughs> just, just like every actor that we've done so far is uh, from Third Rock from the Sun, and apparently the wheel is obsessed with that show. It is mere coincidence that I brought up a fact about Vin Diesel breaking into a theater when he was the age of seven uh, and then getting his first role in a play. Any idea what he was cast as? Was it a, an inanimate object? I, when I was looking this up, I think the play was something about dinosaurs. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe if Vin Diesel ever pops up on the wheel, we can dive a little bit deeper into it. Yeah, probably something with family. Lots of family. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was a, a precursor, actually. It was the prequel to uh, Fast and Furious. Live, yeah, living his life one paleolithic area at a time. Fun fact about Vin Diesel, his favorite scene in any movie ever is Happy Gilmore when Shooter McGavin... It, is there with or is it no it's happy gilmore isn't it damn it i fucked that up edit that out shooter mcgavin's in no, happy gilmore i'm talking about this so fun fact vin diesel's favorite movie scene is in happy gilmore where happy gilmore is taking uh the wood and he says he's just testing his flexibility and it's taking the wood back home to its family Pretty. right Groot. <laughs> Everyone oh gets that. If if I could hit you with a tomato right now, <laughs> so many get Fozzie Bear off the stage. <laughs> Cut it! Cut it! <laughs> I, I think we leave that one in to represent the struggle. Get Fozzie, that's real. The struggle is real. Real. So that's actor trivia. We will uh, transition. Case, tell us a little bit about. Um, the Lithgow snapshot in box office history. I started out by looking at all the movies we're, we're looking at, and, and they weren't terribly successful. Dealing, I wasn't able to find any box office informa- information on IMDb Pro, but um, the the one that you know stood out as, as one of his clear best out of the ones we're looking at is Pet Cemetery. Really, is just because it's a famous story and and it's a it's a remake of a pretty popular movie. But his his biggest biggest successes 
um, were Shrek, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and Cliffhanger. Uh, between Shrek, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and Cliffhanger, which one do y'all think had the biggest opening weekend? Ooh. Cliffhanger. That's got to be Shrek. Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I'd say Shrek too. Yeah, as Rise of the Planet of the Apes had it opened up at fifty-five million, which uh, is crazy because when all is said and done, Shrek ended up being number one. Rise of the Planet of the Apes is right after that, so it was the original Shrek, right? So I'm, I'm guessing it probably wasn't as as well known, and then it picked up a lot of steam. And uh, you guys will also be proud to know that uh, Daddy's Home Two world grossed at one hundred eighty-one million. So it was a it was a very very successful endeavor for uh, for the gang, but um, he's he's got just such an interesting career, and, and we've all kind of talked about it, and it's going to be fun to talk about during his movies. But all his stuff is is pretty solid. You know, Santa Claus didn't knock it out of the park, or Good Man in Africa didn't knock it out of the park, uh, Love is Strange didn't knock it out of the park, but. You know, you, you get into some of the other roles that he has. It's a little bit more minor. I mean, he was a pretty big part of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and he was a huge part of Cliffhanger. And Who is he in Shrek? He's Lord Farquaad. Farquaad? Uh, Lord, right, Lord Farquaad. <laughs> oh, dude, he was, uh, he was great in that role. <laughs> I thought he was great in Rise of the he Planet was, of the was, Apes as well. He was fantastic. Did Matt Reeves do all of the, the Planet of the Apes movies? Those three movies are phenomenal. All three of them. They're fantastic. Yeah, they're really well done. Appreciate it, Craig. <laughs> For the new listeners on the show, kind of what we're going to do next is give you – we're going to paint a picture of Lithgow's acting career from his first feature film uh, all the way to some of his more recent editions. And as we go along, we – with a lot of these actors, there's a ton of movies, and we can't possibly watch all of them beforehand. So we, we pick a few based on some categories – that give us the highs and lows of what he's done in his career. So um, to get us started, Warren watched Dealing, which is his first feature film. So Warren, tell us a little bit about his performance. Yeah, first feature film, uh, didn't go to theaters, pretty much a straight to video, which back in 72, I didn't think that was a thing. But the official title is Dealing or the Berkeley to Boston 40 Brick Lost Bag Blues. What? Originally written by Michael Crichton and his brother when he was like 19, and it was under the pseudonym Michael Douglas. Playboy Playboy actually serialized, serialized the story in three parts in 1970 and 1971. The movie was released in 72. So that's just kind of the background of where it came from. But the, the story is about this loner kid who's a third-year student at Harvard, flies from Boston to uh, California to take drugs for John who is John Lithgow. So really creative with the, uh, the screenplay there. Peter meets Susan, falls in love. They bang it out within an hour meeting. Then she flies from California to Boston and she gets caught with like 40 pounds of drugs. Uh, the cops are dirty. And so they announce that they only found 20 pounds of drugs. And then the guys try and steal it back from the cops and use it as leverage to free Susan from police custody. The movie on, on uh, Rotten Tomatoes has a score of 17%. It doesn't even have a critic score. I, I find it really hard to even give it like a 17. It's really like an hour and 20 minutes. I watched the whole thing on YouTube. The guy who uploaded the movie, I don't know if he did this intentionally, but he like uploaded the movie and then he uploaded the first like 10 minutes of it after it and then like the opening opening credits again and then the rest of the movie. So it's on there twice. But that's how the movie felt. It was just like 30 non sequitur scenes taint to tip, just like back to back to back. The thing was, thing was a fucking mess. 
and there was so much ADR in it. Uh, they, it was like when they ever, whenever they had to go back and add in, you know, dub some scenes, they got like some Eastern European guy to do, do a bunch of the lines. So it doesn't even like match up. Uh, Lithgow is awesome in it, though. He, he's the only person who like under. It seems like he understands like what a movie is supposed to be. He understands um dialogue and interacting with people and you know he he sounds like he's talking with people like you normally would everybody else doesn't understand voice modulation they're just monotone and just spewing their lines he was he was really good he had a full head of hair like looked like a regal lion out there and smokes a cigar in like 75 percent of his scenes playing like a college student so just a big dick player. There's one scene in the beginning where he's playing a piano and just singing. It doesn't fit in at all, but it seemed like a really good opportunity just to get some like footage for future casting calls. So he was really good at it. And I know I, I throw this little scene out here. We can decide if we want to keep it or not, but I want you guys to hear it. Um, this guy goes, he meets this girl and within like 30 minutes, real time or like five minutes in the movie like passage of time 30 minutes they're walking in a zoo and there's a continuous tracking shot filmed from behind some trees as these people walk through a zoo and there's animals just fucking yelling and screeching all over the place and so you have you have to listen to this scene open yeah scene scene opens they're walking for 20 seconds susan you got a girl at harvard Peter, yeah. Wait five seconds. Susan, do you love her? Peter, no. Wait 20 seconds. Susan, you're shit. Peter, no, she really doesn't love me either. Susan, you're so sure she doesn't? Peter, nah, I'm not so sure of anything. It's possible she's trying to get with somebody right now. Wait 10 seconds. Susan, are you? Peter, I don't know. Are you? Wait five seconds. Susan, <laughs> I don't know. Are you? <laughs> wait five seconds. Peter, wait. Peter, I don't know. Wait 10 seconds. Peter, I, wait, wait, are you? you? Stop. In scene. So, so, wait, wait. <laughs> so, thank was God. this movie made by Tommy Wiseau? Because that sounds right up his fucking alley. It's, it's hilarious. And the whole time this guy, somebody, it was like the director just gave him notes. He's like, all right. You, you're carrying drugs. Just act like, act like you're you're on edge about something. And so this guy's head is just turning all over the place, and this girl's just looking at him. She's like, "What's this guy's deal?" Uh, it's, it's classic. I had to watch that part like four times. It was so good. Wow. <laughs> and for our listeners, before you give me shit because you think I'm destroying Tommy Wiseau, just know if you know anything about me, he's pretty much my hero. And so I would never say anything bad about Tommy Wiseau. Just throw it out there. All right. So that's it for me. Warren, we'll, we'll have to pay you with uh, money, I guess, for sitting through that one, that shit show. But it sounds like John Lithgow wasn't half bad. How old was he during that performance? Do you know? Um, I want to say he was like 27. 27? So Brian, Brian De Palma got him this role. How do I know Brian De Palma? How do I know that name? Because he did, he did Scarface. Right. He did Raising yeah. Cane, yep. Untouchables. That's why. Because 
he's worked with Lithgow multiple multiple yeah. movies actually. Yeah, and like, uh, was it? Do you do Obsession? Yep. Uh, uh, yeah, he did Obsession. He did Blowout. Um, yeah. Lithgow's the bad guy in that movie. Um, yeah, he's there. I'm, I'm, because I think they're both they're both probably from the New York scene, so they probably know each other really well from that, and they work together a lot. Well, that. Lithgow came from the theater scene too, so. That, that's the place to do theater, New York City. So, well, and I did watch, per your recommendation, Rigby, I did watch, uh, what's that movie we were just raising? Raising Cain. Yeah. It, was, it was an experience. Yeah, it's a it's a nice little corny 90s thriller. I like the ending. The ending's kind of fun. Ending yeah. was great. It was, it's, it's yeah. a shock. Oh my God, he's he may not alive. He may not be alive. Spoiler alert for everyone who hasn't seen it. All right, well, Rigby, this is a good transition because... Uh, 1985 comes, so Warren, you said 1972 was dealing, right? Yep, 72. So 13 years later, we run into uh, Santa Claus and Movie, which um, is the largest audience gap. So Warren, tell everyone what that means. Yeah, audience gap is we look at Rotten Tomato scores, and so that is comparing the audience score to the critic score. So audiences really like this one a lot more than critics Rigby, tell us tell us why audiences loved this movie about Santa Claus. So I I had never heard of this movie before I was asked to watch it. Um, you know, it's we kind of all have our favorite Christmas movies, and the, so you all we all sort of know the big ones. But this one kind of flew under the radar, and I kind of think for for good reason. It came out in '85, and it the special effects in it for '85 I thought were really good, but the plot just kind of lost me. It's basically about how Santa Claus came to be, you know, and their story is, I'll do this really quickly, but their story is Mr. and Mrs. Claus lived in this, they lived in this village in the 14th century. And on one night they, their sleigh breaks down. And while they're passing out presents to little kids around this, just this little village. And then when they wake up, they're suddenly in this, you know, holy kingdom of Santa's workshop and all these elves come out to find him. And they say, you know, we have this, you're, you're the right person to make our dream of giving kids presents on Christmas Eve every night or every year. Um, you're the person to make this happen. And then he, uh, Santa Claus basically just gets surrounded by these elves and they start making toys and it's this big thing. And then the story transforms from the 14th century all the way to the 20th century in 19, in the 1980s. Um, and that's like the first hour of the movie, basically, just that transformation. Um, and that's where Lithgow's character gets introduced. He plays this sort of maniacal industrialist who basically finds a way to manufacture these toys unsafely and make a profit from it. And so Santa sees Santa and and this elf played by Dudley Moore, who's basically he gets ostracized from the North Pole because he makes he's the head of the toy producing department. This is ridiculous. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> they made this movie so 30 years later someone like you would have to explain it to an unsuspecting right. crowd so he so dudley moore is the head of the uh the toy making like duties in the north pole and because the population of of the world has increased so much since the 14th century they are having a tough time keeping up with the supply and demand basically their toys are falling apart that sort of thing and so the way i took the movie, the way I took Lithgow's role is that he plays this businessman who finds 
out that he can make money off of these defunct toys. And so he basically takes Dudley Moore's character, who's been outcast from the North Pole. He takes him under his wing and finds out a way to like for him to make these toys that eventually combust and and he somehow makes a profit off of it. I didn't watch it closely enough to figure out how he's going to make a profit off of it. But that's the that's the general plot is that this guy is a maniacal guy who's basically messing with um, the North Pole and finds out a way to exploit Christmas, basically. Um, Lithgow's character is very he overdoes it a little bit. And I think just reading Lithgow's uh, comments about the movie in recent past, he even says that it was like one of the tethiest movies he was ever in. Um, and you can tell he's got these big, like chomping teeth, sort of like has a cigar, smokes a cigar, like a, like a, almost like a rich guy from like Tammany Hall would do from the 1920s, you know, um, just sort of like a robber baron type guy. But yeah, I mean, it's, it was hard to watch because I don't know. I just didn't really enjoy the plot, the basic plot behind it. Um, I thought it was really, and I get it. I get, I get it's a movie about a, someone who's not actually real. So, um, but I just, I don't know. It was, um, I wish I would have. I wish I would have been able to watch a, a better movie. Unfortunately, his his character's name is BZ in it, and they never really explain where BZ comes from. I don't really get why that was his name. Um, so that was kind of a an interesting thing. I, I really don't know um, unless they said it in the movie and I missed it. Um, but I, you know, if I had to score my score based off either the critics or the audience, I would go with the critics and probably give this a, about a twenty. So I think that number's right on. But um, definitely, definitely, and last thing I'll say about this, interesting thing about this movie is that two years before that, Lithgow had gotten a, he had actually gotten his second Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. I was just going to say, it's crazy. It's back-to-back years of supporting actor nominations, and then this movie you're speaking of. He got it for what, World According to Garp? And... In terms of endearment. Terms of endearment. Yep. Then Then he does Footloose and Buckaroo Banzai, and it goes to shit. Yeah, and... And Footloose has its faults too, but Footloose is it's a cheesy eighties movie that I can watch and he's got he's got a you know, sort of a he's he's more of a villain whose heart sort of comes around in the end in that movie. But yeah, I just I don't know. It was it was kind of disapp- it sounds like it was kind of disappointing on all fronts from not just Lithgow, but everyone involved in the movie. I think looking back on it, they're like we had a chance to hit a home run and we sort of struck out. So um that's all I will say about the Santa Claus movie. What the fuck is wrong with you, Rigby? Where's your Christmas spirit? <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say Brian De Palma was not involved in that project. He was He was not, uh, unfortunately, because I, I love Brian De Palma. And I think... He, w- he would have gave think, it that uh, edge it needed, you know? Yeah, we could have used some, some panning shots like in The Untouchables after Al Capone hits the guy in the head with the baseball bat. That could have added... That could have added to the movie, but uh, unfortunately, it was it was not to be. Okay, all right. So it sounds like a theme: uh, Lithgow playing characters that smoke cigars. That's what I'm gathering from the first two. So yeah, let's let's fast forward our way to 1994. So nine years later, we're gonna hit his lowest critic score, and that's the one I had the pleasure, and by pleasure I mean the awful experience of watching. And it's called A Good Man in Africa. What you need to know is it is well deserved as the lowest critic score for the best way to describe this. And I'm just give a quick rundown of the movie. So you got, so everybody, our listeners and you all can have an understanding of what I watched. Um, 
let me start with this. Have any of you seen A Good Man in Africa? No. Okay. Nope. So, nope. so I'm the, the Lone Ranger here. Uh, the best way to describe it is Colin Friel plays a character who is a piece of shit, right? So just to give you an, an idea, he's a British diplomat in Africa. The first – one of the first scenes, he is – late for a something and so he gets his driver to get in the car and they're leaving an underground parking garage and he tells his driver to step on it and his driver naturally goes sir but there's oncoming traffic it's a busy street and he says i don't care go and this motherfucker drives straight out of an underground parking garage into the middle of the road and pretty much causes a wreck because it's the most stupid thing of all time and part of that wreck is running into sean connery's character who who, he and lithgow are the only reasons this movie is semi-entertaining connery's character is supposed to represent the only good man in africa i put that in air quotes right because that's the name of the film he's this guy who plays a doctor who's been there for 20 plus years helping folks struggling with all these diseases right but he's just a plot device the whole idea is the movie is about colin friel's character's uh, evolution from being an absolutely shitty human who just wants to use people and does what he wants um and he's this like unrealistically rico suave womanizer like literally two different wives of two different husbands try to get on his nuts a daughter of one of those wives and a local woman like this dude is just pulling tail for no reason whatsoever but the whole idea is by the end of the movie um he hates Sean Connery's character, but through all of these different things that happen, he becomes the only good man in Africa. Because, spoiler, Sean Connery's character dies in a random car crash that you do not see coming, and it's extremely pointless. So that's probably the, the overview I'll give you. Sean Connery calls a condom a sheath, which I thought was interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, there's the proper term in Scotland. The, the, the big, like... Uh, dilemma in the movie is there a a woman who works as a maid at the i guess john lithgow's property the part of the british um consulate of some kind um the woman's name is innocence and she gets electrocuted and it's the most corny electrocution scene of all time and then the cultural challenge is the body is stuck right in the middle of the driveway and they can't move the body because of a a ritual that needs to be done and so Lithgow's character, who is probably best described as a egomaniacal British diplomat who doesn't understand local African customs and does not care at all, is essentially telling Colin Friel's character to just do, like, fix it, solve it. I don't care about their customs, yada, yada, yada. So he says bloody, like, every five seconds. It's, it gets egregious after a while. Um, you know, when people are trying to do british accents and they say bloody way too often that's that's what uh lithgow does but other bloody bloody hell, hell like just <laughs> so they they had they had lithgow do a british accent like a british accent when you could have had uh-huh. connery do uh, uh basically Listen, a british connery accent. is just there to sell the movie that's all his character is there to do into sheath his <laughs> yeah i told you to colin Friel's <laughs> character has some uh some after he has sex with the local African woman, his pee starts to hurt. And so you can uh, see where yeah. that gets into some troublesome themes on this one. 
But Lithgow plays this like snooty diplomat, and he actually does it pretty well. There's one scene where he daydreams about running off with an African woman. That's just weird and puzzling. But otherwise, he plays the arrogant diplomat who doesn't give a shit really well, other than his excessive use of the word bloody. Um, So it's... It's interesting because I saw a different movie, Mesmerized, which I think is an older one from him too with Jodie Foster, and he pl- he does a New Zealand accent. He actually does a pretty good job with that as well. So Lithgow seems to be pretty malleable when it comes to different accents. So it wasn't – he and Connor were the only two saving graces this one. That's a good man in Africa, and I can say that uh, the movie tried to tell you that there's no good men, men in Africa left, which is pr- problematic in a lot of ways. So we'll we'll shift it. We're going 20 years in the future here, so we're jumping quite a bit to 2014 to the highest critic score, and James is going to save us from a, a string of bad, mediocre movies to one that's probably pretty damn good and Love is Strange. Between Kyle's movie and mine, I just want uh, to let everyone know that Lithgow killed it. Uh, it. He won, what are we looking at here? One, two, three, four, six primetime Emmys. Uh, He was nominated for four Grammy Awards, um, two Golden Globes, uh, three Screen Actors Guilds. And this is for his roles on Third Rock from the Sun, as well as Dexter. Um, He also won two Tony Awards, uh, one for Best Actor in a Musical. So he really came into, I think he started to find directors that would put him in a role for where he doesn't have to carry the entire film or the entire cast. So in Third Rock from the Sun, he kept winning awards for Outstanding Lead in a Comedy Series, but that wasn't only put on him, right? There were other actors who were doing uh, a good job there, and there were uh, the writing was helping him. And so it seems like, based on what you guys have said so far, he was doing a pretty good job in these very bad movies. Um I am interested to see if that continues uh, because I can't think of a role that he struggled at. Uh, Everything I've seen him do has been great. And that is no different in Love is Strange, which I had not seen until we watched it, until I watched it for this podcast. So uh, to give you guys a heads up, it is as high as rated on Rotten Tomatoes. It's 93%. And uh, I'll give you a quick synopsis before I get into kind of how he performed. Um, so the synopsis is after about four decades together, uh, Lithgow and Alfred Molina, who are the main, uh, the two main actors uh, and roles, they, they're a, a gay couple in Manhattan and they finally get married. Um, but Molina loses his job uh, and he's fired actually for being an, uh, out and he works at a church as a uh, music teacher. And so they're fi- it, it very subtly touches on homophobia, but it is 100% the catalyst of the entire story. Um, and so he is fired. And when that happens, they need to sell their apartment and finding a new apartment in New York City is difficult to do. So they need to actually move in with their family members while they are doing this and they're separated during this time. So Molina moves in with two early uh, 30s somethings who are actually cops who live downstairs who are friends of his. And uh, Lithgow actually moves in with his nephew and his wife and their son who live in Brooklyn. And Lithgow has to actually share a room with uh, his nephew's son. That is the general plot of, without going too, more, uh, too much more in depth, and it, I can't stress this enough, the movie was fantastic. It was super charming, um, and it is so understated and subtly 
touches on uh, homophobia, family dynamics, um, growing old. Um, and as someone who comes from a very proudly gay family, I absolutely loved this movie because it is not overstated at all. And by the time you actually kind of realize where the movie is going with the plot, you're already heavily invested in the characters. And that is because uh, Lithgow and Molina clearly have a chemistry with one another. Um, it's so natural and comfortable that you feel like you've actually known them kind of forever. Uh, and they're friends of yours and you want to help them out. You also feel Lithgow's pain uh, and kind of his confusion. Um, so he is a painter and his husband is a music teacher. Um, so they're both very artistic, but that doesn't necessarily lend itself to the normal nine to five job. And so Lithgow is so does such a good job of playing kind of this aloof artist who needs to be in the right headspace to be creative. And he's not getting that by being separated from his lover and being kind of a burden on, on his own family. The movie as a whole is bittersweet. Uh, it's charming and it's super moving. Um, I could not recommend it enough. Uh, it was one of the first times that I've seen a story like that actually be told. And I was so, I, I wish I had seen it earlier. I heard of it. Um, I didn't watch it when it first came out and I'm really glad that I actually got to watch it with this. Nice. That's awesome, James. Great review. Yeah, that was great. James, keep in mind, uh, next you will get stuck with a, an absolute turd of a movie. So enjoy it while you can. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why, that's why I wanted to hype it up. Cause this movie lives up to the hype. And if you haven't seen it, you absolutely should watch it. Uh, it's fantastic. All right. So 2014 love is strange. We, we fast forward four years, but before I toss it, to case keep in mind the turd that is daddy's home 2 is in 2017 so just just to understand kind of what happens between the two um just for the the folks listening three of us watched daddy's home 2 even though we didn't have to we still subjected ourselves to it and we're probably not better people for it so largest <laughs> critic gap pet cemetery the remake of the original pet cemetery uh warren give our audience a quick uh, review of what largest critic gap is yeah usually the uh, largest critic gap um those are the movies where the you know your typical munson doesn't really uh, get what's going on <laughs> um it may be it may be a little uh a little too uh smart <laughs> you know i i don't i i'm tired of using the word pretentious because it gets, thrown around, it gets thrown around a lot yeah um so it, it's there's a lot more to it typically has layers. Um, so yeah, the, these movies are ones more highly revered in the, uh, the critic community. Um, and that doesn't always mean that, uh, your average show likes it. So one other show that he was in, in between love is strange and Craig's movie, he was, he played Winston Churchill in the crown on Netflix. And he was is, tremendous at that role, which is, uh, that's a good. That's a, a good role for him. He I won a like. BAFTA for his role in The Crown, too. Fun facts. So, so Case, tell us a little bit about the remake of Pet Cemetery. A lot of people are familiar with the story. For those that aren't, there's a um, there's a cemetery in Maine where people would bury their beloved pets, and then they would they would come back to life. However, the the catch is they don't quite come back the same. I actually watched both. I watched both because I was watching. I was watching Pet Cemetery, the new one. It, it had a very kind of. It had a very 
odd tempo to it for a movie made in 2019. And um, the, the pacing of the movie is actually very, very similar to the original Pet Cemetery. And, and I'm drawing a blank on the year. 89, I think. Yeah. 30 years later. And so, you know, what I started thinking about was, well, of course, because it's based off of a book. So uh, I think the script was, was pretty tight compared to, you know, what, what they were doing. Um, there's some slight changes in it. Just like every other movie we talked about, you know, Lithgow killed it. And it made me laugh because do you guys, do you guys remember who, what character John Lithgow's yeah, reprising who played it? Which was, he was legendary. He was legendary in the first one. South Park poked fun at it at a certain point. Yeah, he, and, and he was good. He was really good in it. And, and Lithgow really, I mean, he does a great job in that role. I, you know, I personally liked the movie. I thought, it was, I thought it was good. The first time I watched it, you know, I, I was a little bit, and this is probably where we're going, the audience score got hurt. You know, a lot of people may not have liked it because the, the pacing is just different than, than movies are than they were 20 years ago, right? And uh, so the second time I watched it, I really enjoyed it a lot more because I, I kind of had a little bit better frame of reference. But, you know, Jason Clark is in it. He's good. Amy Seamitz, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with her very well, but she's got a ton of credits as well. And then, you know, obviously John Lithgow. So the casting's really good. I thought it was shot really well. And the first one, you know, the lack of ability for special effects in the late 80s, you know, they've all been remedied now. So a lot of the, a lot of those things have been cleaned up and, and, and I found it pretty enjoyable. One interesting note when comparing the two of them, the original score only got 50% from the critics and 59% from the audience. While it's not flipped, the audience enjoyed the first one a lot more, and then the critics like like this one a lot more. So, and it's probably because like like most seek or most remakes, you know, people have a connection to the original, and it's it's hard to you know replicate that. But what I liked about the remake, they completely changed which child was kind of the the, the demon child, right? the The original one, Gage, the young boy, was the one who came back and tried to stab his dad and all that. And there's that like really creepy scene at the end. Like that kid was super creepy in the original. And they flipped the script in this one, right? And the 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 daughter was the one who, you know, was resurrected in certain ways. So I, I appreciated that different take. There was that one scene where they're out in yeah, the house, too. and you think, uh, you think the 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 little boy is gonna get hit, and they. So if you've seen the original, you're like, oh, shit, it's going to happen. And then they flip the script, and I appreciated that. I thought it was a – when they do remakes, I like when they take some creative license. And, and she was great, too. She was creepy. I mean, it was she, – she did well. I, I thought everybody did really when well that, in when that movie. first movie. When I first saw the first Pet Cemetery, man, I was like a little kid. It, that movie scared me for <laughs> – I fully agree. Did you guys see Pet Cemetery 2? I did. With uh, – what's-his-face from Terminator? Eddie Furlong. And who's the, the taller guy in there? He plays the sheriff in Pet Cemetery 2. I can't remember his name. Uh, he's in Shawshank Redemption. He plays the dickhead uh, guard. All I remember from Pet Cemetery 2 is the, the one he literally took like a, a dirt bike wheel and put it on dude's face. Like that's how he killed him. I was like, oh, well, this is that kind of movie, huh? Clancy, Clancy Brown, Brown is the name there of you the. Go. I should have yeah, known that. Come on, that. Rigby, you're a guy for that. I know. Why is that a name you should remember? Well, just, I just, I just looked it up. Rigby's obsessed. So <laughs> I love, yeah, Cl- Clancy Brown. He's been in, yeah. He's he's uh he's got a good. Also the uh, the drill sergeant in Starship Troopers. Oh yeah, that's right. Craig, I think one of the points you made about why the audience score is probably uh, pretty accurate is Stephen King's novels 
are very interesting in that like they kind of are like little vignettes of like scary situations that lead to character building but never lead to plot development when you say the pacing like that's an issue he has in a lot of his stories is wow scary scene scary scene scary scene and by the time you're like 100 pages in you're like nothing's really happened yet that doesn't always translate well to film i think that holds true with this one but again I, you know i really enjoyed it i thought it, i thought everybody did good in it you know what, Lithgow, you know, as you guys were talking, I was thinking about some of his roles and it comes up in this one. He plays confused <laughs> really well. Really I agree. Well. I agree. I don't know, you know, what he's doing different than other people, but I, I, he just looks very disheveled and confused at times. He does, and he also does villain well. Well, that's a good transition. So, so let's open up some space. What are some other notable performances from him that we haven't hit in the Lithgow timeline? up to this point? What are some other ones that we need to point out and say, this kind of represents who Lithgow is as an actor? Well, I don't think it represents who, it, who he is as an actor, but I, I love his the role in Cliffhanger as the, as the villain. I thought he was, I mean, that's that's one yeah. of my most underrated 90s movies, and I thought he played the role of the, of the villainous, you know, thief sort of really, really well. I haven't seen it, but when I was doing research, I saw some videos where they picked him as one of their favorite villains of all time in movie history. Yeah, he was great. He was also really good in those seasons of Dexter that he was in, where he's kind of like the foil to Dexter. Um, so playing off of him being a bad guy, an evil character, he say what you want about that show as a whole, but he was great in it. Yeah, uh, and to go off a TV show, uh, Third Rock from the Sun, Dick Solomon, he he was fantastic in it. And I know we touched on it with a little bit with JGL, but that show had everything. That was like, Craig, like you were saying, the confused, you know, this guy, he's playing an alien. Trust me, it's no spoiler, but he's playing an alien on Earth and he's trying to do a bunch of stuff. And he's like constantly confused and his voice range just goes up and down. And you know, he's he's hilarious. He's serious. Like he does. He hits the whole range of emotion. That, that show is fantastic. It is a great show. I would agree with that. Oh, I was going to say one thing. One thing that's interesting is that I was reading just – I read an article today that he gave in an interview in 2016. He was actually offered the role of Fraser Crane in Cheers and turned it down. Obviously, it went to Kelsey Grammer, and that show became Fraser. But it was nice to see him get rewarded with his own 90s comedy on NBC as well. Yeah, I do want to touch on one more just because it was a recent one. Roger Ailes. Him playing Roger Ailes, he was a fantastic fat douchebag. <laughs> he was fantastic he was great. fat he, douchebag. He did a phenomenal job yeah. in that film. Was he as good as – did you watch the Showtime show with Russell Crowe? No. No. The Loudest Voice? I thought – see, I, I haven't seen Bombshell yet, but I thought Russell Crowe – I'm getting off of it, but I thought Russell Crowe in The Loudest Voice as Ailes was – was awesome. It'd be so good to compare. It would take a lot for me to watch Bombshell and think that that Lithgow did a better job, but I'm I'll, I'll take your take your word for Just it. Just watch it, Rigby, and then let us know. As always, I pulled up a top ten list of his performances. So this one is from GoldDerby.com. According to GoldDerby.com, what are his top ten performances? We've mentioned a number of them, but let's go ahead and place them. Is Love is Strange near number one? Love is Strange is number six. Ter Terms of Endearment. Terms of Endearment, number two. And Garp, Garp is yeah. one. Terms of Endearment, two. Obsession. Obsession is not in the top ten. Is Raising Cane? Raising Cane is not in the top ten. Dealing? <laughs> Dealing <laughs> is not in the top ten. In fact, it's it. Is Cliffhanger? Cliffhanger it, is number ten. Number, number ten. Footloose, number three. Oh, wow. Wow. What about Shrek? I mean, Lord Farquaad was Five. hysterical. Five. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So right now you guys have one, two, three, five, six, and ten. I was going to say Interstellar. Interstellar's not. I saw him. He was in a different list of the top ten, but I went with a different one. I, for, I forgot he was in that until we mm-hmm. – until And recently. Timothy Chalamet plays the fucking son, which is weird. All right, so you're missing oh. – Rise of the Planet of the Apes, number nine. So right now you guys no. are missing number four, number seven, and number eight. Is Blowout on Blowout there? Blowout is not. It is an honorable mention, but it is not in the top ten. Oh, what was he in? Oh, he was in um, a civil action with John. He Pinto. was, but it's not in the top ten. Not nope. on there. I'll give you a clue. One of them. One of them has a large ape in it. Oh, Harry and the Hendersons. Number eight. That's oh, number nice. eight. So there's. He's got nice. two films with apes in them. And then one number four is from 1983, and then number seven is from 2017. Is the 83 one the Twilight Zone? Twilight movie? Zone, the movie. So you're missing number seven. It's from 2017. Salma Hayek was also in the film. Oh, I know the movie. I never saw it, though. That's uh, Beatrice. Something Beatrice. Yep. Beatrice at dinner. Yep. And then the other honorable Ooh. mentions were Leap Year and The Crown. So Leap, Leap Year? year. Oh, he's, a, a, he's great a, in The Crown. Can't stress a it A different enough. top ten list had Shrek at number one. It had the Tuskegee Airmen at number four. Had all that jazz, number six, the day after, seven, and Kinsey at ten. Oh, Kinsey. Yeah, I like I like so. Kinsey. We've we've kind of covered Lithgow's career front you know, front to end here. So we're gonna get into our final segment, and that's rating his career on a scale of one to zero to hundred. I guess someone could rank at a zero here. So um, for our audience, these are some of the things that we rate on. So longevity. Right? How long have they been in the game? Have they been consistent through that time? Pop culture impact. What does their flexibility look like as an actor? Are they just character actor? Can they fill different roles? Um, what their awards outlook looks like. So have they won awards? Have they been nominated? Other talents outside of this space. So do they direct? Do they sing? Do they you know, do theater and those types of things? And then kind of their personal life as well. So Warren, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, what score would you give Lethko? So I'm going to give him a 74. Um, I know that's a little higher than what I gave JGL, but he's been around for a long time. Uh, diversity through the theater and everything. He's he's uh, got a nomination EGOT, so he's at least got an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony nominations for anything, and he's got two wins. The only downside is he had an affair with Liv Ullman in his personal life, so uh, 74 for me. Perfect. Uh, affairs that we know about. Right, it's Hollywood. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, the Wikipedia. <laughs> exactly, exactly, documented. Okay, <laughs> our case. We're going to you next. What do you, what do you score on Lithgow? Well, I'm going to give him an 81. I, uh, I mean, guy's been at it forever. I, I feel like he he plays. I mean, he plays great comedically. He plays great villains. Um, he's you know he's picked up some awards. I, I feel like he's done more than just act. Um, you know, I just and I don't know a lot about him personally, but. Like his personal life, that's also not a bad thing. And I didn't read his Wikipedia page, so I didn't know about the alleged affair. So I'm going to give him an 81. Thanks, Case. James? Uh, I think he is one of the best in the game, so I gave him uh, 86. Um, I can't think of a single role that he has had, even in terrible movies, where I didn't feel like he was fantastic in it. Um, I feel like he has unlimited range. Every time I see him on screen, he is immediately... I don't see him as just the actor. I actually see him as that role. I think he's that good. Uh, The reason why I don't have him higher is because he's not usually billed as a leading man and he hasn't had huge box office uh, success. Other than that, I think he's done it all and I think he's one of the best there is. Rigby? I'm 
going to go 80. I'll go 86 as well, just because I feel like that's a, a good score for him. I don't want to really want to go 90, so I'll go 86 with James. Yeah, he's um, he's one of those actors that whenever he's in a movie that you're watching, you're happy to see him. He's funny. He's plays a villain really well. You know, my first taste of him was from Third Rock from the Sun back in the day. So I will I've been a been a fan of his for years and I will continue to do so. And I'll jump in. I'm going to give him a 79 to a lot of your points. Longevity. He's been around for so long and he's done. I mean, he's so talented in all the worlds. I think mentioning all the different awards he's gotten, the EGOT side from a nomination standpoint is awesome. I think the reason I have him below an 80 is because I think sometimes I just, I look at some of the movies he's been in, I just forget that he's in. I think that's all about where Hollywood casts him. Um, so John, if you're listening, I apologize. I don't, I love you. I don't hate you. You're on Twitter and we'll tag you. So you might listen. Pop culture impact, how he can get lost in some of his roles. He's very good in his I think he could take shitty movies and make them manageable. But yeah, that brings absolutely. us to a final score. So, Warren, were you tabulating those as we go? Can you give us an idea of kind of where we landed as the average? Final score for John Lithgow is an 81.2. 81.2. That's good. And JGL was 70.5, yeah. I believe. Yep, 70.5. All right, so that's another benchmark in the Munson's Mount Rushmore, I guess. All right, fellas. Well, that is the coverage of Lithgow. We're going to transition to talk for a couple minutes on what our next episode is going to look like so our just for the listeners out there um, our next episode will drop and we will discuss one of these five actors for the new listeners uh, we will be posting our third episode on march 12th we will spin the wheel on march 5th uh, at around noon eastern time to see who's going to be our actor and uh, that decision will be made from these five and so the the five names we have generated are Ike Barinholtz, Regina Hall, Melissa McCarthy, Dakota Johnson, and Alicia Cuthbert. Gentlemen, any initial thoughts on these five? Who do you love? Who do you hate? A lot of comedic actors in those five, uh, which means we can get a lot of terrible movies. I think I'd like to see either Melissa McCarthy or Ike Barinholtz out of that group. Give me some Regina Hall. I mean, going back to the scary movie days, right? Just, just yeah. Really yeah. Watch five scary, scary movies. Scary movie, Girls Trip. I, I, I would probably prefer Melissa McCarthy just because I've probably seen the most of what she's done. Be happy to do any of them, but I prefer Melissa McCarthy as much as I'd love to watch The Girl Next Door, Cuthbert, because that movie's legendary. Uh, that wouldn't be my prefer- preferred pick. I think giving Dakota Johnson vindication would be fantastic. People put her in a bucket because of the Fifty Shades movies, but she's done some really good dramatic work. In some other films, I mean, for those who uh, did it, I assume some of you saw uh, the movie with um, Shia LaBeouf. It's called uh, Peter Butter Falcon from this past year. I think she does a really good job in that. The one with uh, Chris Hemsworth. What was that? Bad Times at the Bad El Times Royale. at the El Royale. I thought she was pretty good in that. So I'd be excited about Dakota Johnson, but I'm on Warren's train. Regina Hall to be able to cover the scary movies and all of those things. I think would be a lot of fun. Don't forget. Don't forget about Dakota Johnson in a 21 jump street in a non-talking role where she kisses Jonah Hill or uh, yeah, not Jonah Hill. The hot one at the end. The hot one. Dakota Johnson's so damn sexy too, man. Ugh, good Lord. It's always fun just to dig into their filmography and start binging movies, good and bad. For our listeners, if you're still here and you've stuck through with us, we very much appreciate you. We try to keep it entertaining. Once again, you can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, and Munson's at Movies. Our Gmail account is Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Please do reach out if you have suggestions for the show, ideas. If there's particular actors that you want to cover at some point in time, we can potentially add them to our list. In the meantime, look out for the 
wheel to decide our next actor a week from today. Make sure you subscribe and, and tell people about us. If you, if you like what we're discussing and you like kind of the vibe that we're going with, make sure you tell your friends, subscribe, follow us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, and on Stitcher. And we're, as always, on our Podbean account where the uh, the podcasts live. Any final thoughts from the Munson? This is a fun one. Lithgow's a he's, – he's a – good actor and i'm glad we uh we all had some good things to say about him he deserves it well gentlemen it was fantastic and looking forward to the next opportunity to chat with y'all munson's out all right let's go thank you for the education gentlemen we've just received a phd in stupidity